0: Sleep, go sleep. And do me a favor. Don't disturb my friend. He's dead
1: tired. Well, what the hell are you saying, Doc? You bruised half your body sleeping. I uh, I sleep pretty hard.
0: Welcome to Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories. I'm Brian, and hey, I'm Murdoch, and we are here to talk about the rumor and innuendo surrounding your favorite bands and favorite artists. You can always get involved in the show. Uh, you just hit the email. It's We Are the Story at Gmail. Dot com. Hey, here. Let's start here. This is fun. Okay. Name a band that has been influenced by the Beatles. Uh,
1: the Posies, uh, <laughs> Big Star.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. These are very on the nose. I think you could probably say almost anyone after 1965 or 1970, but for sure. Beach Boys, Billy Joel, Oasis, Blur. I like yours, though. I was listening to um, Dear 23, the Posies record, not very long ago, like last week. Did
1: and you ever hear The Remains? Did you ever hear that band? No. The remains—they um, open. Imagine that you got to tell your kids that you're in a band, and they're like, "Oh, really? That's that's great, Brian." And then you told them that you opened up for the Beatles. Oh. So the remains—if you go and you 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 look around—the remains were contemporaries at the time, but American band, and they got to they got to do dates like that opening act. Really. It was like Barry and the Remains. Remember that? (laughs) It was like the Remains, and like Barry is the lead singer. I would see that. I don't know if they just changed that at some time, was Barry and the Remains. That is a song called Don't Look Back, and that's the one you want to hear. You both made your bed, and now You're gonna have to sleep there Old Man Blues is going to try To find Dude,
0: that's, that's crazy. And it's funny because you don't think, I don't think, about the Beatles doing live gigs, right? But we're we're going to talk about the Beatles doing live gigs in their early, early days here in just a minute. But answer a second question for me that I think yeah. is harder. If we said band influenced by the Beatles, now let's say band that influenced the Beatles.
1: That's going to be Carl Perkins, Elvis Presley, Chuck Berry. Oh, yeah, you got uh, it. Smokey, Smokey Robinson. Right. Um, yeah. Buddy Holly, Elvis. Yeah. all Like an Amer-
0: American artist. Sure, sure. And another way to do this is to look at, speaking of their live gigs, to look at the stuff they were covering back when they were playing the Cavern Club.
1: That's which, right. Which is a
0: super fun digression. How much do you know about the Cavern Club?
1: You know, I've as a Beatles person, I only know what I know from watching the anthology, like reading the book, um, you know, listening to the oral history from literally from like Paul and those guys talking about doing it and they played marathon gigs like they played long sets um, and that's kind of where they cut their teeth that was the home base well it's where they find each other right and it was a
0: jazz club when it opened in 57 and there was this rule that you couldn't play rock and roll inside of it and they were oh, into that yeah oh, yeah and they were in different versions of different bands like right like so Paul and John were playing Skiffle sort of stuff, and then Ringo was Corey in there was. playing with a different band. And um, Ringo actually plays with a band that sort of sets the stage for things getting a little more edgy. And by sixty one, McCartney, Lennon, Harrison, and then at the times two, Sutcliffe and Pete Best get to play for the lunchtime crowd. That was like how you cut your you really cut your teeth to even get into the Cavern Club. They let you play at lunch, and young office workers were into this, and so eventually they get the nighttime spot. And much to the chagrin of the club owner. They're like wearing leather jackets when they come out. Um, oh, yeah, that's right. But they were drawing like 500 people to the club, and the club only holds like 200. So it's hard to argue with that. Um, but he- here's why I bring this up. What were they playing when they played at the Cavern Club? Before they were writing their own songs, what songs were they playing? You've mentioned some people who definitely are on this list, but here here's here some other ones. They were playing cool. Come On Everybody by Eddie Cochran. They were playing Mean Woman Blues, which was recorded by a lot of different people, including Elvis and Jerry Lee Lewis, and I think Roy, That's right. Roy Orbison did it, too. Um, they, they were doing Gary U.S. Bond songs, like mm-hmm. Lucille and New Orleans. They were doing Hank Williams, and they were doing Boney Maroney, Dizzy Miss Lizzy, mm-hmm. Down, and Bad Boy. A couple of those they would later record. And all of those, those last four songs I just mentioned, were written by a guy named Larry Williams. Any bells ring when I say that name? No, and I'm ready to hear about Larry. 1935, he's born in New Orleans, and he starts learning the piano at a young age, eventually moves to California and gets into playing R&B bands. And when he's 19, he goes back to New Orleans and meets up with his second cousin, who is a guy making a name for himself in the music scene there named Lloyd Price, future Rock and Roll Hall of Famer. Yes. And Lloyd lets Larry work for him. He's kind of a gopher and then a chauffeur, Uh, And Larry has musical leanings as well, and he gets to be in the room with Lloyd a lot and Lloyd's friends, and eventually Larry's playing the piano for these guys. And a good portion of these guys he's playing with are all on the same record label because it's New Orleans, right? And again, we talk all the time about the regionality of rock and roll at this time period. So specialty records in New Orleans, Louisiana. I think I'm going to start doing pop quizzes at the beginning of our shows to help you and everybody else keep track of the crooked record labels we talk about.
1: (laughs) Specialty records.
0: (laughs) Which I also like. You didn't have to try hard when you were starting a record label in the 50s. Specialty. I mean, just take a word. Um, Specialty ends ends up selling to Fantasy and is now part of Concord Music Group. But it was started in 46 by this dude named Art Roop. And he starts it in L.A. Now, how does an L.A., Los Angeles guy end up with a bunch of artists from L.A. as in Louisiana? Um, Well, this is really interesting. So Art is one of these guys who decides at some point that he's like, I'm going to be in the music business. And he couldn't quite – he was trying to like academically figure out how to do it because he got in at first with somebody who was starting a record label and he lost a bunch of money. So he he regroups and he says, "Okay, if I'm going to do this, I need to like figure out the science. I need to do a research project." So the story is he goes out and spends 1945 money, like 250 dollars. So I, I, that's probably a lot. It's probably like a thousand dollars now, worth yeah. of of what at the time were referred to as race records, right? Records mm-hmm. by African American musicians, and so he starts trying to figure out the formula like what makes this work and here's what he comes up with he says i'm going to combine big band that was still popular because this is the 40s and then i'm going to throw in a little bit of that emotional feeling you get when you're at church i'm going to try to put these two things together but he realizes if he's going to do that he needs black performers so he starts hanging out at afters hour after hours clubs in watts In L.A. So eventually he kind of gets this working for him. Guys like Roy Milton and Percy Mayfield and Jimmy Liggins. And in the early 50s, he gets obsessed with the sounds of Fats Domino that he's hearing coming out of New Orleans. So he takes a road trip, and that's how he ends up in New Orleans.
1: Yeah. By the way, by the way, Fats Domino's cover of Everybody's Got Something to Hide Except Me and My Monkey is fantastic.
0: talking about the Beatles covering other people. I also love it when other people cover the Beatles, especially people like that. If it's good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Not everybody. I mean, you know, like anybody can pick up a guitar and try to cover the Beatles. But when you have somebody coming from a different background, like that's Domino. Yeah, please sign me up. Um, Okay. So when he's there, Art meets Lloyd Price. And this is how our boy Larry Williams gets sucked into the world of specialty records because he's driving around Lloyd Price, right? Fun story. So Lloyd Price starts recording for Art Roop, and he says, oh, hey, let me send you this demo of this other guy I met who I think you'll really like. And he sends him the demo of an unknown kid named Little Richard.
1: (laughs) My gosh! Why did you tell me we're going here? I'm so excited. And Little
0: Richard signs with Specialty in 1955. Now, Ooh. I'm yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm sure at this point it will come as no surprise, but the contracts that Specialty Records signs people to are not very good to the artist. Uh, you could probably predict if you listen to any of the recent episodes of this show. Um, that basically, long story short, these contracts just gave full ownership of the publishing to the record label. The intel is actually that Little Richard sells the rights to Tootie Fruity for 50 bucks. Gosh. He gets... Hat, Pat, 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 Pat Boone. Oh, yeah. I mean, everybody, but he gets a half-cent royalty per record sold. A half-cent. Mm-hmm. That was yeah. like a thing they were just writing into these contracts. Yeah, 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 yeah. You give us... that, We'll give you upfront money. 50 bucks. Uh okay, half a, half a penny. So if you spend any time in the little Richard story, there I mean there's a there's a lot to get into. So if you really want to go deep, there's an episode of this show way back in the archives about Little Richard, episode 10, episode 10. Well, wow. oh my gosh, dude. I know. That was doing, episode 10? That was episode 10. But for the purposes of this story, There's some things about Little Richard to keep in mind. First, Little Richard gets to know Larry Williams during this time. And second, in 1957, Little Richard leaves rock and roll for religion for the first time. There's more than one time that Little Richard decides to, to go gospel. But the first time he does it is only a couple of years into the career, and there's this five year period where he steps away from the from everything. Now, there, there's a lot to talk about there, but I came across something in the research that I had never heard before, and I'm really curious if you've heard. So, do you know what causes him this first time to step away? You know, no, I don't know what that is. So he he says he sees, like, I'm not sure the exact story, but I think it has something to do from what I read that he's on an airplane, like going to Australia and he sees something in the air and he like takes it as a sign. Does that ring a
1: bell? No, but, but I mean, I kind of, you know, that, that kind of sounds like how things interject into his life. You know, like Jerry Lee Lewis is like, has, is like tormented by the sin of like how rock and roll and all that whole thing is like, Little Richard gets like freaking signs to tell right, him that. Right, right, totally. Like, it's a very different thing, you know, even though they're both tortured by the whole thing, it's very different how it, it works. So, something that I read said that he
0: did see something on that f- plane. Like, he got off the plane and was like, I saw something on the plane. And the thing I read said he actually would have, from where he was and when he was there, he saw the launch of Sputnik 1. <laughs> Like I don't hope and that that's what he saw. And he like took it as a sign from like not knowing what it was, took it as a sign from
1: God. Wow. <laughs> like imagine, like now when someone sees SpaceX and you're like, holy crap, I'm giving it up to God. <laughs> no, you're giving it up to oh, Elon is what you're doing.
0: Oh man. I so yeah, I don't know if that's a hundred percent true because I've I've not read that before, but it, it was just sort of an aside in this thing. I was reading about this, and I was like, Oh my god. Okay, so back to this whole thing. So your art group, you have this record label. You're finally starting to get some traction. You have Lloyd Price and you have Little Richard, and they're both doing really well. And your rising star, Little Richard, leaves your record to celebrate, or re- leaves your label to celebrate Jesus. And meanwhile, Lord Price, Lloyd Price, had been drafted into the army, and he's not really getting along with Roop. Um, it's a little unclear on the timing here, but basically, there's this big hole to fill. And so, Art, what are you going to do? you turn to that impressive side guy, chauffeur, gopher. And that's how Larry Williams gets a record deal on specialty oh. records. Oh. So Lloyd Price comes back and has a little bit of a renaissance, but this is the point where things take off for Larry. Very briefly, he sort of flames up and then flames out. He basically has this two-year run. Short, fat Fanny, Bonnie, uh, Boney Maroney, Dizzy Miss Lizzie, You Bug Me Baby, She Said Yeah, Slow Down, all of those come out. And some of these are oh. modest radio hits.
1: And she said, yeah, the Stones covered that. Right. On, it was like track one on December's Children. Is that right? Yeah, that's yeah. exactly right.
0: Dun, 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 dun. So Art Rupe has gone down in history as one of the record label guys who was very resistant to payola. So there's some speculation that part of the reason that Larry doesn't get bigger faster is because they're not paying mm. for play. Yeah. Um, not sure if this this art group's reason for doing this was more about morals or money, but either way, it was definitely a factor larger than that, though. If you start looking for info on Larry, you're going to very quickly encounter stories of the excesses that Larry loved. Now, most of the slapdash articles that mention this will bring up drugs and they definitely play a part in Larry's life. But I actually found the Jet Magazine archive <laughs> from 1959. what What? that reports that Larry gets arrested in 1959. Now everything else I'd read said that it was drug charges. The actual jet magazine article says that it is mostly gun charges. He gets caught with three rifles, a pistol, ammunition and weed. So there is a little, there's a little bit of weed. Yeah. Now, this, this causes Larry to lose his record deal, and he ends up doing 18 months in prison mm. for, for the guns and the drugs. It kind of got off easy. He gets out in 62, and we've talked about this a lot recently in the show in different ways, but when you go from 57 to 62, even though it's five years, there's a lot that happens in rock and
1: roll. Yeah, right? all this Bill Haley, Paola, Alan Freed,
0: yeah <laughs> yeah yeah yeah. You just did like the first uh, the 100 and 200 rock and roll history class, right like right there in those yeah. five years. and yeah. and so Larry gets out of prison and there's this new crop of acts coming out and uh, piano music, piano rock music is not a thing people are very interested in anymore. but there's all these bands and you already named some of them that are starting to cover Larry's music, The Beatles, the stones, the Who. They all eventually record songs from Larry Williams. But it never really catapults he himself. He always is sort of on the periphery. And he continues to make music. He has some a couple of really good stints. But he's also always sort of chasing these other extracurricular interests that he has. So it depends on who you listen to. Etta James, who... She could get wild herself. There's there's a lot of stories. We're not going to get into Etta James super far on this episode, but I will say she had a crazy upbringing, a crazy launch into music, struggled with all sorts of stuff, so she knows. She says that Larry Williams was legitimately working as a pimp. Oh, wow. This is fascinating. Now, the more I dug into that, the more I think it's true. Um, I did find Bobby Womack saying that Trying to like dispel the rumor and say like oh, I don't really think he was a pimp, but he's not very good at it's sort of wishy washy when he <laughs> in that article he's like no you know I don't know I don't think you know. um but whether or not he was working as a pimp, we can agree at least on this. A quote from Johnny Guitar Watson, who Larry works with in the late sixties. Johnny Guitar Watson. Man, I haven't had this. Okay, keep going. This is so much fun. This is a quote from him. At the time, everyone was doing drugs, even me. I didn't escape. Nobody escaped. It was just part of that time. Everybody was snorting cocaine, smoking weed. And man, you're talking about wild stuff. It was just woo. I like that that's like how it's written. It was just woo. I can't even begin to tell you how it was getting through that era. Looking back now on the time, it's frightening. So. Here's where I'm going to tell you to spend time after the show if you want to dig deeper into this. I did find this beautiful online magazine that I had not seen before called By NRW, and it's like a very in-depth article um, that is like a 30-minute read. It's a long-form piece that they put up a few years ago on the friendship between Johnny Guitar Watson and Larry Williams, it's by this guy, R.J. Smith. Highly recommend this. Now, in this article, Johnny Guitar Watson's daughter says that both Larry Williams and Johnny Guitar Watson were definitely pimps. Like, she says that's for sure. Um, there's lots of pictures of them. There's the story of the uh, album that they cut together On in the album cover. Has both of them on the top of Cadillacs riding them like they're racehorses. Uh, Uh, it's wild stuff if you want to go and look at all this so they do some records in the late 60s and they do a lot of drugs together Um, and we know that the drugs were not done with Larry Larry was definitely also doing drugs and for that I provide a few pieces of startling testimony called from a few rock and roll autobiographies and biographies Um, (laughs) in the late 60s Larry reconnects with Little Richard. So remember, into the 50s, Little Richard converts. Five years, he's out. He comes back and starts doing rock and roll again in the early 60s. He, in the mid 60s, is on OK Records and he brings Larry in as his producer and his musical director for his live show. But Larry, also Little Richard's a dealer. And this goes on for a period of years. And it gets bad between both of them at some point. Did you read the Charles White Little Richard book? No, no, I didn't do it. Okay, this is from that. Okay. And it's quoting Little Richard. Larry Williams came to my house with a gun to shoot me. I'd gotten some cocaine from him, arranged to pay later, and I didn't show up because I was high. He'd been with me at Specialty Records. I brought him to fame. We were very good friends, but he came to shoot me. That was probably the most fearful moment in my life. That is what drugs do to you. He said, Richard, I'm going to kill you. Ain't no one going to mess around with my money. I knew he loved me. I hoped he did, but he had this pistol right there, and he would have shot me if I didn't pay him. Man, he's right. (laughs) <laughs> drugs will do weird stuff. Not the only rock royalty to do drugs with Larry and talk about it later. Now, I couldn't find the exact page on the book like I like to do. Typically, I like to like verify this stuff. But I did find reports that in her autobiography, Tina Turner makes it clear that Larry Williams was supplying Ike Turner throughout the 70s mm, and gosh. She says he introduced Ike to freebasing. Uh, Man, that's tough. So, as you can probably guess, this lifestyle of being a pimp, a drug dealer, and a musician makes it hard to gain a lot of traction just in the musician part.
1: Now, it does sound like it's a blast. (laughs) It sounds like rock and roll to me, dude. Well, I will tell you. And when I
0: started to get into the what we're about to talk about um, around his demise, uh, I was curious about what conditions he was living in. And apparently he was living in some really nice digs between the royalties that I think he was. I, I don't know how the publishing worked out, but I do think he was getting some royalties from all those covers. But also it's sort of assumed that he was making the money through prostitution and through drugs too. So he was like, like he had a bunch of cars and a really nice house in the Hollywood Hills. Like he was diversifying. He was, I yeah, see what he's doing there for sure. So. Oh, one more thing about Larry before actually two more things in the seventies. He tries to redo some of his songs as disco and it's not good. <sighs> okay. Um, and then he also gets into acting for a while. Like he's in some exploitation stuff. And crazy fun fact, he's in this 1974 movie called The Klansman, and it's notable, not because it's good, but because it is the feature film debut for someone else who is not known primarily as being an actor, and that
1: person is O.J. Simpson. (laughs) Oh, my God. He's, he's, he's in the Klansman. He's in the Klansman. Yeah does does he does he does he murder one of them? What happens? I, I
0: did not watch the film. That is where my research stopped. Um, but I'm sure we can find it on YouTube or Tubi. Yeah. <laughs> it's got to be I, one I of do those want, two places.
1: I do yeah. want to say there's no way that OJ's performance in that at all could hold a candle to his performances in the Naked Gun movies oh, where no, he's so good.
0: They're so good.
1: Or, yeah, because he always gets hurt. Like comical bad things happen to OJ. It's kind of weird. Yeah. Oh, man. Anyway. So January 7th, 1980.
0: Larry Williams found dead in his home. Bullet in the head. Yeah. Differing details on the whole thing. And I couldn't tell you which are true. But some reports say that the doors were locked from the inside. Others say his hands were cuffed behind his back officially it gets ruled a suicide. So LAPD comes, sees the scene, says he killed himself. But given everything we know about Larry and his business dealings and some of those Mm. weird details around how he was found, there is plenty of speculation that it was not self-inflicted.
1: Yeah. It's like a guy having two gunshot wounds and they're like, ah, suicide, just sprinkle some crack on him. (laughs) <laughs> I, 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 I sprinkle I also, some crack on him Johnson I, I, also, I love that that, Ch- that Chappelle joke kills know, me every I time know,
0: I know you do, a good, you do a good impression of Chappelle doing your impression of a white guy uh, I also <laughs> dug up the Jet Magazine death announcement so, dude, the Jet Magazine archive is a real thing online, and
1: it is awesome. I, by the way, thanks for telling all of us about this. <laughs> we all, every one of us, including me, your, your co-host, and all of our listeners should go, and I can't wait to go look at the archive. Okay.
0: So, uh, in the death announcement, it says his mom finds him, oh, which is tough. God. Dark stuff. Yeah. All yeah, right. Man. All right. So, why have I brought you here, right? Uh, I don't know, to punish me no, about this? No, notice, <laughs> I, notice, I haven't, I haven't mentioned what we're talking about. <laughs> I haven't given no, you the question
1: for today. Right, right. We're not even... Right. This is all a, a preface to something else, isn't it?
0: Yeah, you thought Little Richard at gunpoint during a drug deal was why we were here. It is not. Remember, an easy way to support the show is to head over to Patreon. Patreon.com allows creators like us to take financial thank yous from you Uh, and we'll don't worry we'll give you stuff in return how about uh, scripts from the show or maybe you want some special bonus episodes Uh, you can get all that stuff when you check out patreon.com slash rock and roll bedtime stories thanks for supporting the show thanks for listening and go ahead and leave us a review too that'd be huge that doesn't cost you anything except you know like a little bit of time and you're gonna have to use the exclamation point a lot in the review because you're so excited okay that's it so your finger may get a little sore, but other than that, I think you're going to be fine. Uh, review the show at iTunes or anywhere else that you are able to download it and let other people know how much you enjoy digging into rock and roll bedtime stories with us. We're proud to have you. So lucky that we get to do this every week, and we appreciate your love in return. So I got I got in a conversation with a friend over beers at a bar recently, and in passing, I don't remember what we were talking about. In passing. as That's what happens this- when you drink. As an aside, <laughs> just ask Little Richard. Uh, as an aside, <laughs> he, he, my buddy says, oh yeah, it's like that friend of Little Richard who died and then someone started impersonating him. And I was like, wait, what? <laughs> and you can't say anyone that knows me should know. You can't drop stuff like that on me because I will be distracted the rest of the evening. I was like, can you say that again? Yeah. Say that again, please. Yeah. He said, yeah, it's like that friend of Little Richard who died and then someone started impersonating him. okay there was like a record scratch in the bar i was like what i immediately like i can't pay attention to anything else immediately i'm on my phone like trying to put all these pieces together to figure out what the heck he's talking about all right so we have to rewind and head back to the mid-60s for a second and we got to do some more context laying to get us to where we need to go okay we're gonna go we're gonna do some blues history bobby blue blant doesn't well, have the recognition of Yeah, doesn't have the recognition of BB King and Buddy Guy, but huge influence on the blues in The Birth of Rock. And he also in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Yeah,
1: yeah. When, By the it, way, B.B. King could not play any chords.
0: So fun fact about Bobby Bland doesn't play an instrument in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame as a blues vocalist. Oh, I didn't know that. I thought he played guitar. No. I didn't know he was just a vocalist. Wins a Grammy Lifetime Achievement Award in 97. And he's probably most known for the song Ain't No Love in the Heart of the City, which, of course, I know you know the White Snake version of. Listen.
1: (laughs) I just, I want to tell everyone. I just started following David Coverdale on Twitter. Oh, my God. He has a Twitter account? And everyone should. It's like... It's like the happiest, nicest person that you would know that has a Twitter account. You're like, I'm going to follow that person that's always super positive. But in this case, it's the lead singer of Whitesnake. And it <laughs> gives me so much joy to see that he's such a happy guy. Uh, they, that after all of these things, uh, Ain't No Love in the Heart of the City is a. Like, even even
0: hearing you tell me that makes me happy. So I can't I can't wait to check that out. Uh, another notable uh, use of that song for the other half of our audience is it was sampled, of course, by Kanye on um, Jay Z's The Blueprint. So you might know it from there. Now, Bobby Bland comes up on Beale Street in Memphis in the early fifties and is in fact discovered by a young talent scout named Ike Turner. Yeah, <laughs> and Bobby has a drummer in the sixties named Martin Albritton. Okay. So I'm just getting us to the fact that Martin Albritton was playing with a rock and roll hall of famer, right? But Martin Albritton is who we want to zoom in on. Cause there's not a lot out of the, out there by about Martin Albritton. He's a, he's a bit, bit. If you thought Larry Williams was a bit player, Martin Albritton is a bit, bit, bit player.
1: Yeah, Larry Larry Williams certainly was a great songwriter though. I mean, he Right. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Pooped out some great songs. He,
0: he I mean, Beatles, Stones and Who songs, right? Like written by Larry Williams. So, this guy, Martin Albrighton, comes up playing in a legendary blues club in Illinois in this house band called the Mellow Fellows. Later he'll join with another guy who calls himself Big Twist and they'll be Big Twist and the Mellow Fellows. He's a decent great. drummer. Never never a lot of notoriety until Larry Williams dies. Larry Williams dies in 1980, and around about that same time, Martin Albritton, and I don't know why or how. This is just, I have been pulling my hair out trying to get to the next couple of layers of this story, But all I can really seem to certify is that, yes, indeed, at some point in the early 80s, Martin Albritton started calling himself Big Larry Williams. Notice his name is not Williams. His name is not Larry. His name is Martin Albritton. He starts calling himself Big Larry Williams, and he starts telling people that he is the author of Boney Maroney and Dizzy Miss Lizzie.
1: Hmm.
0: And he starts touring as Larry Williams.
1: Oh, man, I didn't know about this. This is fantastically terrible awesome. It's also a terrible business plan. Like, if you're going to impersonate someone, impersonate someone
0: who's going to get more money on the club circuit than you. But Larry was only nominally famous to begin with. So on one hand, I guess it's, you know, you pick somebody who, like, people are going to be confused because they know the songs and don't know the artist. But, and you know, it's not the, the Internet's not around, so it's not like you can Google and be like, no, his face doesn't match, right? So I guess that works, but I don't see how he's making a ton of money.
1: Right, right, because there's no marquee name there. Right. Right. It does not seem like the scam would
0: pay out enough to justify it. But he's doing this. Now, I have I can find a million places where people say in like sort of just in a in a note, like, yes, this guy started calling himself Larry Williams. He started touring around. And the family got upset about it, but like there's not a lot of detail. And I have searched and scoured looking on book archives and everywhere else. I cannot find a lot more about this, but
1: wow, there
0: is an interesting story that also, again, not a lot of detail, but there is always this part of the story at the end that says <laughs> that, you know who shut it down? Who apparently
1: uh, Richard?
0: Fake Larry Williams. No, fake Larry Williams does a date in Chicago. Now he's from Illinois, so I think he was around the Chicago area. What I read said it was a tour date in Chicago, I don't know. But he he was always sort of playing in that in that region. And remember how I mentioned earlier that one of the people who was who said Larry Williams was a pimp, was Etta James. Yeah. <gasps> yeah. Etta James and Larry Williams knew each other. I believe oh. at one point there's a, there's like a, there's a specialty, it may be a specialty record single or it may not even be on specialty records but it's like a, there's a single that she's on one side and he's on the other and I'm not sure the history on that single but they, they are, I, I, they're together somewhat musically and they're definitely together um, as friends. They knew each other. And, she gets wind of this guy saying he's Larry Williams after Larry Williams has died, and she goes to the show and confronts him face to face. Oh, my gosh. Etta James. (laughs) So good. That is so badass. Fun fact, Etta James uh, at last um, was the song my wife walked down the aisle to at my wedding. No way. Yeah, man. Wow. I love me some Etta James. In this story, this sounds like something my wife would do. So I I really like the spirit of it all. <laughs> uh,
1: you know this is this is great too. And man, I love I love Etta James um, for sure. Now, Big time. what happens
0: to Martin Albrighton? Right, like what the what the heck? So I can't tell yeah. how long he did this shtick. The best I can tell, it it was a few years in the early eighties. Now. He's this Mellow Fellows band. He's like the drummer in uh, the lead singer. Big Twist ends up. He dies, um, I think, in 90. And they ask Martin Albritton to sing. And it's funny because when I started to really dig in and try to find anything I could about Martin Albritton, a lot of what I was pulling up was local and college papers around Southern Illinois University because I believe that band came out of that college town as early as far back as the as the 60s or 70s. So they've been around forever. And he's like, I I literally found a 1996 article where Martin Albritton plays a fundraiser for himself to cover medical bills at the university. Uh, Wow. Gosh, it's crazy. And yeah. I, I found another one. Uh, I found another like 1990 article talking about him and that band, but they don't mention the Larry Williams thing. So Martin dies in 2017. And as recently as a year ago, I found a, I can't find anything about to certify this Eddie James thing, but I did find a GoFundMe to raise money for the grave marking for Martin albritton's grave.
1: Oh, my gosh. Those <laughs> things always kill me, dude. Where people were trying. I mean, three that's- grand.
0: That's all they were trying to raise was three grand. They did it. So I don't know what they're going to put on the grave. I didn't want to be disrespectful uh, and speculate. But wow, that is quite the tale.
1: Um uh, <laughs> It's so ridiculous. I love that Etta James is the is the, is the person.
0: I know Etta so. James just is like takes it on herself to show up and be like, "You're not Larry Williams." Yeah. <laughs>
1: she, by the way, by by the way, if you're not an Etta James person, there's a, a a primer of hers to jump right in. Of course, at last is something that people ought to know that know about that. There's a compilation called R and B Dynamite. Oh, it used to be a, a, it used to be an import, and it came out in the '80s, and I. It was the fir- I moved to New York City right out of college, and I went to this record store. And it was the first record I bought in New York it was this Edda James record. Wow!
0: Um, if you want to get involved or weigh in on this in any way, shape, or form, feel free to hit us up. We are the Story Guys at gmail.com is an easy way to do that. Um, and until next time, what should people keep doing, Mark?
1: Keep telling stories, Brian. Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories is a Story Guys production. The show is produced and edited by Brian Eichenberger. Get more stories, hear more podcasts, and book the guys for your conference or house party at wearethestoryguys.com. Copyright Boy Have We Got Stories Productions. All rights reserved.